And we thought we finished with the big first energy ASB6 corruption news yesterday. It got even bigger last night, and that's what we'll be starting with on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. And it's Friday, so I will hear joy in your voices. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, hey. All right, let's get started. Why did it take so long for the board of First Energy to fire their CEO, Chuck Jones, following the revelations this summer of the bribery scandal and the corruption scandal that rocked the state house and cost Larry Householder his job? Yesterday, the board of directors voted to oust Chuck Jones, who I do want to point out shares a name with the guy who created Daffy Duck and the Looney Tunes, which I think is appropriate in this context. Anyway, Jane Cahoon, this is a huge development, although I am surprised it took this long. What's it about? Well, I cannot answer the question of why it took so long, because First Energy issued a release on this, but did not elaborate. But they did fire Chuck Jones, along with two other executives. And this, of course, is in the midst of multiple investigations all spawned by this uh, uh, corruption investigation of the nuclear bailout bill that was passed last year, HB6. So the company said these these three executives were fired after an internal review committee determined that they, quote, violated certain first energy policies and its code of conduct, unquote. Now, we know a number of times Chuck Jones, you know, their, their line throughout this is that we uphold the highest standards of conduct and so forth. So, uh, Which always resulted in wide rounds of laughter, right? Because there's a $60 million <laughs> bribery scheme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, the, there are reviews going on by the Ohio Elections Commission, the PUCO, the Securities Exchange Commission. Dave Yost has sued them. Shareholders have sued them. So they're they're really in in the thick of this thing. And and as we've said before, the charging documents in this corruption case clearly say First Energy provided the $60 million that Larry Householder put into dark money accounts and used to advance his own career to push through this nuclear bailout bill and to make sure it didn't get repealed. The the thing that's boggled my mind about First Energy's position throughout this, you know, and they get in touch every couple of weeks to say, you know, we're, we don't own the nuclear plants anywhere. It's like, shut up. You were involved in this thing from the beginning. <laughs> You're not going to distance yourself. But, but, but the thing that boggles my mind is this is $60 million. I mean, there is no company in America that spends $60 million on a scheme like this that the CEO doesn't know about. You know, so that is reason enough right there, you would think, for the board to say, uh, Chuck, you got to go. But but if he really didn't know about it, that's actually worse. I mean, they're spending $60 million to fund this horrible scheme and nobody knows about it. It's Yeah. Just, As I recall, he was not identified by name in, in the charges, but but referred to. And he's he just like said he didn't know what that was. You know, that, that wasn't him or whatever uh, words to words to that effect. But the number um, of people in this case, though, Jane, that have ducked, tried to duck notice boggles my mind, because when this bill was being passed, everybody covering it knew it stunk to the high heavens. And yet the House passed it. The Senate passed it. Mike DeWine joyfully signed it. Yeah, and when the effort was made by by regular people to try and get it tossed, 
they all stood by again while dirty tricks were played one after another to undermine the constitutional right of people to fight a stinky bill. You heard nothing from Mike DeWine. John Houston kept trumpeting how great the bill was. The House still hasn't gotten rid of it. And the head of First Energy has up until now managed to duck the whole thing. Right. I mean, this thing stinks. And yet all <laughs> of these people that were involved in it are standing on the side saying, oh, look, look what a mess that is. They created the mess. <laughs> it's just yeah. there's got to be accountability. And it sounds like the board of First Energy did it. Do you think they did this because their their stock's in big trouble because of the guilty pleas yesterday mean that the feds are coming? That could be a factor. Uh, you know, there was another interesting side development here that that also could be a factor or or not. Uh, you know, Andrew Tobias wrote this story last night, but John Coniglia uh, contributed to it. He had found out some information from federal court. Documents filed earlier this month in one of these shareholders lawsuits show that Chuck Jones and other top executives at First Energy sold off millions of dollars of company stock from March 2017 to March 2020. And those records allege that that Jones sold or otherwise disposed of over 788,000 shares for $31 million during that time, and that he sold most of those shares on March 1st, 2019, um, a couple of months before the the passage of House Bill 6. So there's some allegations of like insider trades. So is that a factor here? Um, Well, maybe. And not a peep from Bob Cup, the Elmer Fudd of this Looney Tune, <laughs> the guy who could get rid of this thing overnight. Not a peep. We still have this this book, this law in the books. And starting in January, unless these lawsuits work, we're going to start getting our pockets picked to pay off First Energy as a result of this bribery scheme. I'm remaining with my straight face here while you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you like, everybody likes Elmer Fudd, I guess that was apt. Well, okay. yeah. <laughs> Can I say something? I, I think it's. I think this is a, a fascinating case because here you have, thus far, you have Larry Householder who is digging in and basically saying, look, this is how business is done. And, you know, now you have the CEO of the company is out. You know, keep in mind the, the language they use to describe his departure was not the, you know, he's choosing to step down. He's oh, he, no, no. It's, he was terminated. And so, you know, a lot of times when you when you talk about these these sort of big wigs, you know, they always get to sort of go out, you know, on their own accord and they always get a, a big fancy golden parachute with a lot of money. And and it doesn't appear right now that that's the case, you know, th- that they straight up fired this guy and that's telling. And and so we're, you know, we're going to see, I mean, really, this is going to be a, a, a very big dark money trial. And the behavior of the energy sector is is basically going to be on trial because this is this is common among this industry. This is how they do business in every state. This is being watched by a lot of people. So, you know, what happens here is really going to rattle some folks. Well, and don't and don't forget that everybody involved in this play was subverting the best interest of Ohioans. This is all on the backs of Ohioans. You know, so First Energy was sticking it to its customers. 
DeWine, the House, the Senate were sticking it to the ratepayers. They didn't protect the interests of the people they're elected to serve. Exactly. And, and even when the indictment came down on the first day, they all still stood by the bill. Only when there was a wave of outrage, did they say, oh, yeah, right. We probably shouldn't have a stinky bill out there. But, you know, the, the motives were good, blah, 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 blah. These people are all guilty of subverting our interests. And yet. It's still on the books. Well, we'll and it, but if you but if you say this is how things are done, I don't think that's the defense that you think it is. Like I think that says more about you and what what like morally bankrupt things that you're willing to accept about uh, about the world and about our government and how business wait, does get done. Wait, wait, wait. When, when you say you, you're not talking to me. I hope. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm I'm saying you know when when a person's you know you know, has to swallow whatever it is in, inside themselves to get up in front of a microphone and say, well, you know, this is how legislation gets passed. Like, think about think about what you have to push down inside of your conscience to 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 get up in front of the public and say something like that. Like, it, I mean, honestly, this is a lot of money. We're in a time where this state is hurting, where everybody's hurting. And to pretend like this isn't a lot of money and a huge deal you know, really take a good look at yourself. Yeah. Well said. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Cuyahoga County defy all expectations and not go purple Thursday on the state coronavirus color chart? Lord Johnston, everybody expected us to be purple. The county health department expected it, everybody looking at it. And then we're not just not purple. We're not even on the watch list anymore. Right. We dropped to four of the indicators on the state's color-coded coronavirus caution map from six, and there are seven total. So I think if we drop another, we even go down to orange. But there's four criteria that we are flagged for. The number of new cases over uh, per 100,000 people over the last two weeks, a streak of at least five consecutive days of increasing cases, a string of days of increased hospital admissions, and one of the last three weeks in which more than 50% of the new cases were outside congregate living places, which, such as nursing homes, which I think every county in the state practically reaches at this point. The thing is, we're, we are no longer increasing so exponentially as we were before. So it's still bad, but the increases aren't going up the same rate. And I think the way Mike DeWine announced it yesterday at his news conference was he said that we've hit a plateau at a very high rate but a plateau. And so we are one of the red counties. The majority of the state, I believe at this point is red. There's only two counties that are yellow. And I think he said it was like half a percent of Ohioans live there. So we're just one of the many counties that are, are dealing with this huge instance of, of coronavirus. Um, I think, I think DeWine said, there's no place to hide. So the the color chart then is more like the doofus version of the Richter scale for earthquakes that that the higher you get, the harder it is to hit the higher scale. I mean, the Richter scale has lots of numbers and, and it's thought out and carefully scientific. Ours has four colors. But to get to that fourth color is very, very difficult. Right. So this is the second time we've been on a purple watch list and fell off because we're not increasing at the same clip. But you're right. Everybody had expected it. The county health board certainly made superintendents very aware of the possibility to the fact that we had, what, five or six school districts we knew about that were going to switch to virtual immediately if we went purple. And they were they were planning for it. So my my son's fourth grade class watched DeWine's press conference yesterday at school. They sat there with their fingers crossed. And, you know, 
you think these kids don't want to go to school, but they'd rather go to school than do virtual school. And they, so they were just like watching DeWine to see what happened. <laughs> That's great. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How can the U.S. Justice Department close its civil rights investigation into the Cleveland police killing of Tamir Rice without ever actually doing any investigating? Chris Ranowski, this is tragic for Samaria Rice, Tamir's mother, who's never going to get justice for the killing of her 12-year-old son. And, and you know, I want to point out once again, the call about him was that there's a man with a gun sitting outside a rec center. And in Ohio, it's perfectly legal to have a man sitting with a gun outside a rec center, not threatening anybody. So when the police show up and kill him within seconds without investigating, it's an outrage. Right. And and it's worth pointing out, the New York Times actually had this story early yesterday where they, they basically illustrated that the, the Justice Department took no action on this case, despite being asked by career federal prosecutors back in 2017 to allow them to convene a grand jury for an investigation into Tamir's death. There was a, a, a whistleblower complaint that was filed in August with the Justice Department Inspector General and obtained Thursday by us and by other news outlets that basically outlined that supervisors did not act on this request for two years. And in July 2019, the prosecutors in the case were told that it was over. And the Times reported that the Justice Department officials formally denied the request for a grand jury in August 2019. And I guess what what's really sort of the bigger news here is that it basically, without doing anything, they, they've sort of formally closed it because even if somebody, you know, even if you had a justice department that had the will to actually carry this out, which I don't think we have right now, the statutes of limitations have expired for most of the charges that prosecutors could have brought against officer Timothy Loman or officer Frank Gombach. And so, I mean, really it just kind of it was allowed to sort of sit there and wither on the vine. You know, None of that I mean, stuff was sourced, right? I mean, that, that the New York Times reported all that stuff about the grand jury, but as I recall, they didn't even source that. They just stated it as fact, which was a little bit troubling. Yeah, but I, I think it's worth pointing out here that observers do sort of note that that civil rights charges like this are really difficult to prove. But the the larger issue, and I think when you 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 listen to you know, people who are, you know, activists in this vein, you know, they talk about the fact that, that what, what, what's really difficult to deal with is that these things never get their day in court that say what you want about the, the process that, you know, these police officers, a lot of times are never indicted. They're never brought in front of a jury, like anybody else who kills somebody might. And, and so, you know, there's, there's a, the perception that there's no accountability, you know, I mean, this, I mean, that's what I think this whole Black Lives Matter movement has been about these past, you know, few years is, yeah. is that, you know, it's like, get them in court. I mean, look at Breonna Taylor. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's, well, we got them for something not really directly related to the killing, but we, you know, there's enough here to to quiet people down and, and we can move on with it. And that's, you know, that's sort of what happened here. Well, it's- we we the one thing this would have given us is an independent investigation because when it was done locally, it was done by local local officials. And we just we didn't get it. We, you know, and Samari Rice, who had put a lot on that, won't get it. Anyway, you're listening to this week in the CLE. 
What is Ohio's almost unimaginable new coronavirus record? And what does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine say about it? Jane Cahoon, it, it kind of staggered us all yesterday when that number popped up. What was it? Yeah, although you did predict that we were going to hit another record, but little <laughs> did we know. I mean, we've been wondering when we would hit the 3,000 mark on daily cases, and we just rocketed past that to just under 3,600 cases on Thursday. It's it's just astounding. And so how did DeWine handle that? Well, more, oh, please wear masks and all that. But he also doubled down on his strategy of putting more responsibility on counties and other local officials. On Thursday, he called them his, uh, not his, but the uh, COVID-19 defense teams. And so I don't know if he's trying to evoke some football imagery or what, but these defense teams are supposed to be made up of county commissioners and mayors and hospital leaders, local health commissioners and business, religious and other leaders. But anyway, he's continuing to have these Zoom calls with local officials to try to rally them to to fight the virus on the local level. He didn't say much about what he's doing to try to get to the bottom of what's really driving this enormous increase and yeah, absolutely he, nothing. <laughs> he, he he once again acknowledged that his health department doesn't have any hard data on that. Yeah, let, uh, let, 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 he, let, let, let's stop there for a sec because yeah. I, I I don't know that we've explored this enough. Laura Hancock asked the question, you know, it's exploding. The surge is out of control. What are you doing to get to the bottom of why? You know, basically, what are the physics behind this surge over the last five weeks? And, and, you know, we got mumbo jumbo. Yeah, I got to look at that. I got to look at that. You know, he started by saying this is like when uh, a hurricane hits and everybody comes out and helps each other. But you know what really happens when a hurricane hits? They declare a state of emergency and bring in disaster teams to get to the heart of it. He's not getting to the heart of it. Why is it spreading? You know, I put a question out on on my text account yesterday, wondering, could it be that we turned on our heat and it's forced air systems? I heard from some HVAC people who know the business and they said, yeah, we've always known that's how cold and flu spreads. The heating systems don't kill it. So of course that's how it's spreading. Okay. Well, that would be instructive if that's true, right? Because then you could start coaching people on how to deal with that, but they're not. I mean, there are up to 3,600 cases where we were at 1,000 a day five weeks ago, and there is simply no urgency by the governor or anybody else to understand why. I don't get it. Back in the spring, they did all sorts of research on the why and the how. You would think he'd want to know that, but he but he ducked our question again. Yeah, he, he told more stories like I think it was about a another funeral, you know, he keeps talking about weddings and family gatherings where this has spread. But uh, he did actually acknowledge that that other there could be other sources of spread. You know, he's he's been saying, well, none of this is tied to businesses, because as we all know, he doesn't want to close businesses again, especially right before the election. But he said, I'm not saying there's not spread in the workplace. I'm not saying there's not spread in schools. I'm not saying there's not spread in bars. But um, as I said, he's not willing, at least before the election, to shut anything down. So so how about the thirty six hundred people that tested positive yesterday? How about asking them 
if they've been to a restaurant, if they've been to a store, what kind of heat they have. I mean, we know who they are. There's 3,600 of them. Let's just ask them. How do you think you got it? Even if, even aren't they if supposed only, to be doing that now? Aren't the I mean, local they departments? They say they're so. starting to do it, but the, where is the urgency? I mean, people are going to get sick. Some people are going to die. You would think you would make this your number one priority. We have got to figure out what's going on here so we can coach people on how to avoid it. And and we're not getting that. We're you know we're getting you know we're all in this together. And and I'm I'm putting this on the counties. He, I was surprised. He goes, you know, some of you reported that my going to local officials is a new strategy, which, okay, that's fine. It's like, it is a new strategy. <laughs> you called the local <laughs> officials and said, you're now the front lines. You kind of given up the, the responsibility. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. What is Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's big move to battle racial inequity, something he has been talking about a lot in recent years, particularly in things like his State of the City speeches? Laura Johnston, he tore apart his health department about a month ago, uh, in part because of of abuse of people there. It wasn't, it wasn't based on race. They were abusing everybody. But it, as part of that, he restructured it because he wanted to start dealing with matters of equity. But then he took a big step yesterday. What was it? Yeah, he's going to make this new division in the city's Department of Health and he, sorry, public health. And city council would have to officially create the division and the new mission. The role is going to be to focus specifically on finding solutions to inequities. And Jackson says, you know, enough talk, we need to actually do something about it. So they're going to look at the inequities in finding jobs, accruing wealth, accessing health care, obtaining a personal sense of well-being, basically all these aspects of your life. And the city's posted a job opening for a new position, the Commissioner of Health Equity and Social Justice, that will report directly to the Director of Public Health and build a staff that works with leadership in the community, including businesses, philanthropy, um, and healthcare leaders to make this happen. This is about social justice and infrastructure to create that. It's really easy whenever the city does anything (laughs) to be skeptical because the city, it's it's a big government. They screw things up. So so that's the easy thing to do. But I have to tip my hat because we're not going to deal with issues of equity unless there's an initiative. And and I, you know, this is part of parcel of who he is. It's what he's been about uh, to take this step at least opens a door to doing something. We'll have to see who gets appointed. We'll have to see how they measure their performance. You know, there's a lot of questions about it. But you've heard a lot of people the past couple of years talking about we got to deal with the racial equity and nobody has a clue as to how to do it. So maybe, well, I mean, there, there, I mean, there is some clue, you know, and I think what I hope, hope in my, in my heart and in my, in deep down in my soul is that, you know, this doesn't just become another job for, you know, some other politically connected person, because really the issue that needs to be addressed is, is one of economic injustice, you know, that, Racial inequity is a thing, but it it is so deeply tied to, you know, people's ability to, you know, we always talk about bootstrapping. Well, you know, it's difficult to to tell somebody to pull up their bootstraps and, you know, when they don't have boots and to really address this issue, you really have to take a look at it from a financial perspective. And, you know, historically, just relying on the goodwill of philanthropy to, to do the right thing has not worked. I mean, philanthropy is just, you know, you're ceding more power to wealthy people. You know, you're, you're, you're giving them the ability to decide who gets what, when in reality, 
you know, the government should be should be doing what it can to pull people up. And I know people well, are hearing uh, that, you know, but, until but you really said until you said the government, everything you were saying could have come out of Frank Jackson's mouth. I mean, I know I know this guy better than most, and, you know, and he's been heavy on this whole idea of the beast, this this the the all of the people that profit off of the misery and the the economic unfairness. Um, he but he does not believe that this is solely or mostly the government. He believes that it's a community wide thing that the people who who profit off of this need to to be brought well, right. to heal. I mean, I mean, so part of this, but, uh, but part of this really is aimed at accessing and building wealth. Again, how you do it, we'll we'll have to see. But but everything you said, except for it's on the government, is is what this is about. Right. But it, it's, you know, I mean, the city's already taken a couple of interesting steps, you know, I mean, they're limiting where dollar stores can be located. And, but, you know, I mean, and that's, that's kind of a bold move because dollar stores, you know, while they do tend to serve some function in communities, it's also an industry that does prey on poverty. And, you know, and, and, you know, we've had in this state, we, you know, we've, we've wrestled with the idea of payday loans, you know, there's all of these kind of sleazy businesses that put people in this, this cycle of poverty and inequity that, you know, they, I mean, the first big step would be to get rid of all of these businesses that profit off of people being poor. And, and I'm interested to see where this goes because it could be, you know, another do nothing, you know, declaration that we're going to, we're going to wrestle with this problem, but it's, it's, I'm telling you, like we're getting to the point where it's going to be next to impossible to, to address this because it, right. it's, the time it's like right. climate change like we're nearing the point of you know p- passing the point of no return with it and and you know at least it's a start so we'll see all right we got six questions left i was going to try and get to we have time for one so let's do it how is a new york judge trying to undo the damage done by two robocallers who use the sleaziest of tactics to discourage black people in Cleveland and East Cleveland from voting. Chris Wernaski, we talked about this the other day. This really was despicable, but it's fascinating how the New York judge wants to correct it before the election. Yeah. So uh, Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman, who were were charged with making these very <laughs> kind of, you know, race baited robocalls in, in black communities in, in several states. Um, are now going to be required to arrange another robocall that will be recorded and sent to more than 80,000 people, including people in Cleveland and East Cleveland, who originally received the call back in August. And the second call must say that the court has found um, that the first call contained false information and that it had the effect of intimidating voters and interfering in the November 3rd election. And I, I think what's interesting is that if they don't comply with the order, the judge said he would hold them in contempt today and he would uh, is basically would then let the National uh, Coalition of Black and Civic Participation hire, hire a robocall firm to disseminate the call and make their group pay for it. So. All right. So um, let's let's remind people what they did. They called people across the country, but in Cleveland and East Cleveland, 8000 of them mm-hmm. and said, if you file for an absentee ballot, Police will use it to serve warrants. Debt collectors will use it to chase you down for debt. And hospitals mm-hmm. will use it for a, a mandatory vaccine program. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so wrong. And it's part of, as we discussed, a long pattern in this country of trying to disenfranchise black voters. Did, what is the so, so wait, wait, wait. So, so they were indicted. 
on felony charges, a lot of them in Cuyahoga County. What is the jurisdiction of a New York judge to be able to order them to do that? They haven't been convicted of anything, right? Well, my guess is that it would it have to do with the origin of the phone calls. So wherever wherever they were doing the robocall from, I think is where the jurisdiction would be. You know, I you can make a, a kind of loose legal argument that, you know, well, you know, this was in multiple states and and but my guess is that in in this particular instance in and with this particular order it's and and the in and they were this is a civil suit so this was brought by an organization against them so it's not like prosecutors were sort of court shopping for uh you know a a favorable you know federal district or court district this is this was you know some people have decided to bring this lawsuit against them in this specific court so this court is going to be the one that rules but you know they can make i mean they can make them if these calls i think or were originated in in the state of New York. But I think what 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 I think is really fascinating is that they were sued under the Ku Klux Klan Act and the Voter Protection Act. So imagine imagine trying to make an affirmative defense that what you were doing was not motivated by race and you were sued under the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> Act. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll leave it there. It's this week in the CLE. All right, that's it for a week. We got a lot of stuff we can talk about next week that's left over from today. A good position to be in. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. We hope everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE has a safe and enjoyable Halloween. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>